Juan and Paul and Stacey out there can speak for both of us, wishing our mothers were in the audience to hear that lovely introduction. Um, okay, so our disclosures, our brand, as Paul said, is from Kohl's, and uh, we also have a contract with Child Health and Development Institute, um, and we have no um, other disclosures, no other disclosures or conflicts of interest. Um, so our objectives this morning are um, to identify ways to counsel families on best practices for babies to grow up at a healthy weight, um, to recommend a responsive approach to feeding infants and toddlers, to identify opportunities to modify obesogenic behaviors leading to abnormal weight gain in the first two years of life, to identify maternal and child risk factors for developing obesity, and to identify resources and refer at-risk families. Um, I, I want to start with it. This is actually a restaurant in Las Vegas called the Heart Attack Grill. Um, and as you can see, over 350 pounds eats free. There's a scale at the door. And this is actually the menu from the Heart Attack Grill, um, which you can see is, you know, vile. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd like to say that uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but unfortunately sometimes what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas, and that is really kind of what's happening with the obesity epidemic. It is spreading um, throughout our country and actually now globally. Um, and I will say that my husband was looking at this slide and said, All right, can I just say, though, that fries, deep fried, and pure lard are probably so tasty. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, this is sort of the culture, the food culture that we're living in. Um, I think the health impact of obesity is pretty clear and everybody is, is aware of it, but we just wanted to um, give some statistics to really kind of hit home how alarming it is. Um, childhood obesity has tripled over the past 30 years. Um, the most recent uh, NHANES data, the National Health and, I can't remember what NHANES stands for, um, Health and Nutrition Examination Survey done by the CDC, um, was just published in pediatrics actually about a month or two ago, um, that 18% of children 2 to 19 years are obese. 14% of children two to five years are obese, which is an increase of 5% from 2014 to 2016, and 8% of children younger than two are currently obese. Um, we are learning uh, more and more that childhood obesity tracks into adulthood. Early and rapid excessive weight gain tracks into later childhood and adolescence with worse health outcomes than children with normal weight. Um, as with many things, um, rates are higher for low-income and minority children. 19% of, of black children and 22% of Hispanic children are obese. Um, and, and we can't ignore the significant impact of obesity-related illness on healthcare costs. Um, and currently, um, this is actually a slightly old article, 21% of annual medical spending of roughly $160 billion goes to obesity and childhood obesity itself leads to 14 billion in direct medical costs. And um, I was just flipping through a, a McKinsey report on their Global Health Institute last night, and you know, if you look globally, um, they're thinking the costs are gonna be upwards of $2 trillion a year. That's the global um, impact of, uh, of the obesity epidemic. Um, so, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a complex, systemic, you know, multi-causal uh, problem, and, um, and it's going to need, you know, there are no easy solutions to this. Um, 
going on in Hartford. Um, this is a study done by Ann Ferris um, from UConn um, and, the department, and the city of Hartford. And this was in a repeat of, of a study of Hartford preschoolers that she'd done four years earlier. And um, in 2016, 32% um, of Hartford three to five year olds are overweight or obese. So that's, you know, kids starting kindergarten, 32% are already overweight or obese. Um, and if you look at the um, breakdown, the racial ethnic breakdown, children of color are at greater risk of being overweight and obese. And again, this is the same Harvard preschoolers. And I think the really alarming thing sorry, is the, the orange and the red. So the red is the extreme obesity with BMI greater than the 99th percentile. Um, and if we sort of collectively look at um, the, the combination of obese and extremely obese, um, highs in Latino children, um, and then also in African American children. Um, and the, the recent um, data that was published, the NHANES data in pediatrics, um, showed that two to five year olds with severe obesity, um, with a BMI um, greater than or equal to 120% of the 95th percentile, that 1.7 times that they are 1.7 times more likely to be African American, 2.2 times more likely to be Hispanic, um, more than twice as likely to be to be in single parent households um, with parents with less education, that living in poverty, and also experiencing um, more than four hours of screen time, which is twice the recommended amount. Um, they're um, one and a half times more likely never to have been breastfed, um, and again, like this, there are greater disparities in social determinants of health. Um, than in their non-severely uh, obese peers. Um, we can't uh, escape the link between poverty and obesity. Uh, I think that economic and physical health cannot be easily disentangled, um, and the effects of the social determinants of health have been well established, um, and, and people living um, in low socioeconomic status with poor, um, poor access to education, housing, environmental exposures, problems with transportation, with food access, neighborhood safety, violence prevention, um, social cohesion and community support. Um, and if we look at Hartford, Hartford has been, um, has been sort of called out as both a food desert and a food swamp. And we really are going to need multi-sector solutions and policies um, that are community-centered and that address these social determinants of health. Okay, so this map is giving you a broad view of the Hartford food environment. Um, so we might not have a heart attack grill here in Hartford, but we don't have excellent options for access to healthy food. And so this map is showing you that um, there are only three grocery stores in Hartford. Um, and a 2014 report from the Reinvestment Fund actually found that Connecticut is worse among all states for access to a grocery store for low-income residents. Um, it's just not a, a statistic that we should be proud of in Connecticut. Um, and while Hartford also has um, limited access to grocery stores, it also has a glut of fast food retailers. Um, so this combination of a high density of fast food options and a low access to grocery stores creates that food swamp that Nancy mentioned. And recent research actually suggests that um, a food swamp is a stronger predictor of obesity rates than the food desert the traditional model. So if we take a closer look, this is on Albany 
corner um, in which the Hartford Public Library branch on Albany Avenue is directly across the street from a McDonald's. And we met with the Hartford Public Library um, <coughs> librarians at this particular branch and were talking about programming that they offer. And they had mentioned that they had received a grant to provide free, healthy snacks and um, partner that with nutrition education. And they said that no one would come because all the kids, you can see that there's um, a middle school right behind the public library. All of the kids walk from there and they go straight to McDonald's and then they come back to the library. Uh, and she said that they just can't compete with McDonald's. And she said that the reason McDonald's is there is because they were the only um, establishment that would take that space on Albany Avenue for a long-term lease. And so clearly Hartford has significant financial problems and this is one way in which we're seeing that um, impact the residents. So if you drive down Albany Avenue, um, in a mile and a half stretch, you'll see all of these fast food establishments. And this does not take into account all of the convenience stores and bodegas that you would also see, which we also know are notorious for providing processed food and not access to healthy food. So one of the things that we uh, have been seeing and that, and that uh, the data has been uh, showing us is that overweight and obesity in early childhood tracks into later life. And that rapid increases in weight for length in the first six months increases risk of overweight at three years. Children with a BMI greater than the 85th percentile at ages two to five years are five times more likely to be overweight at age 12 than children with a normal BMI. Severely obese children with a BMI greater than the 98th percentile the uh, two-year-olds have an 80% chance of being obese by age 35, and five-year-olds in that weight category have a 90% chance of being obese uh, at age 35. And there was a study published in the New England Journal just this past year, just a couple months ago, actually, um, that simulated, it, it was a model that simulated growth trajectories um, of uh, current children um, out, and it was, I know, I don't even ask me how these models work because I have no idea, but um, it was a longitudinal, they looked at um, studies of more than 41,000 children and adults, um, and by simulating these growth trajectories, they predict or project out that 57% of today's children will be obese at age 35. Um, and I think one of our challenges is trying to get rid of that uh, cute, chubby baby um, myth um, that heavier is not healthier. Um, and we need a paradigm shift away from that. Um, and some of, one of the ways we can do this is really by monitoring growth patterns closely and really intervening with upward trends. We need to address the racial and ethnic perceptions of heavier babies as healthier. Um, and one of the problems is parents of overweight babies, especially infants and even toddlers, often don't perceive them as overweight. Um, and one of the things that, that we can try and do in our offices is really just project out those weights or those weight for lengths to just let parents know if they stay on that trajectory in where their weight is going to be when they get to be 18, when they get to be 20, when they get to be 15. Um, this was actually uh, a baby that I saw in, in my office just a couple weeks ago, actually, and I thought, oh, perfect growth chart. Let me just grab that. She, um, at age seven months, was about, I think, 28 pounds or something. And, you know, this is sort of that perfect example. She was being, she was formula fed, they were putting cereal in the bottle, um, and uh, had introduced 
solids sort of early. And this is just that perfect example of just crossing um, percentiles all the way out. Um, and this is a baby, and this is the uh, weight for length curve, which is also, they're both you know, over the 90th percentile, who is at serious risk for being obese. Uh, so, in terms of treatment of childhood obesity, by school entry, almost 25% of children are already overweight or obese. Um, most interventions for childhood obesity have been school-based, mostly diet and activity programs, and very, very few have had long-term success. Uh, and achieving long-lasting results with lifestyle modification, which many of us know, is really difficult once weight crosses the 95th percentile. Uh, so I think the, the academic pendulum and, uh, and um, the, the focus has really been shifting to prevention, and especially um, prevention in infancy and childhood, to, to try and alter adiposity and weight gain trajectories and take a life course approach. Uh, so a lot of this, um, the feeding, data comes from um, Feeding Infants and Toddlers study, which was done in 2002 and then again in 2008. Um, and it was a cross-sectional um, dietary intake survey of a national random sample of parents and caregivers of infants and young children. And one, some of the things that they found in this is that caloric intake during infancy and toddler years is really in excess of needs. Uh, there are major changes in the diet that occur during the nine to 18 month period with food preferences and dietary intake patterns largely set by two years of age. Food acceptance is related to repeated exposure to healthy foods, flavors, and textures in early childhood, and that young children's diets at the family table mirror unhealthy eating of older children and adults. Um, excessive consumption of high energy, low nutrient foods, such as sweet and salty snacks, sugar sweetened beverages, and too few fruits and vegetables. And there's a few alarming statistics that come out of this, which is that um, the most common vegetable for toddlers is french fries, and uh, that there are uh, many infants who will have more exposure to sugar sweet beverages and candy than to fruits and vegetables in a given day. Um, and one of the other things that has come out from the study is that um, health messaging is really important, and parents are, they need consistent messaging. They need to hear be hearing the same thing sort of across the spectrum from healthcare providers. And so we really need to work on standardizing our health messaging across sites, the primary care provider, with home visiting child care facilities to prevent parental confusion. Um, the Institute of Medicine in um, 2011 came out sort of, they sort of defined these, uh, the domains in order that we wanted to focus on in, in shaping early, in shaping obesity prevention policies. So assessing, monitoring, and tracking growth from birth to age five, increasing physical activity in young children, um, and obviously decreasing sedentary behavior, promoting the consumption of a variety of nutritious foods, encouraging and supporting breastfeeding during infancy, creating a healthy eating environment that is responsive to children's feeding cues, ensuring access to affordable, healthy foods for all children, Limiting young children's screen time and exposure to food and beverage marketing, which is huge. Provide, no pun intended, provide consistent information and strategies for obesity prevention and promote age appropriate sleep duration among young children. Um, so, <clears throat> how do we prevent the problem? Um, this is sort of my slide to just 
do my little um, soapbox. You know, prevention is our wheelhouse. I think, and Ed, you can go back and look if you still have it. I think in my essay for residency programs, you know, my reason for going into pediatrics was you have a chance to shape behaviors. You have a chance to prevent illness and to prevent some of these bad habits that lead to later problems um, and, and comorbidities in life. Um, and I think everyone in this room has a stake in preventing obesity. Um, and if we look at what we do as pediatricians, we are about prevention. We prevent infectious diseases with vaccines, or at least we used to when people used to, parents used to let us give their kids vaccine without you know, discussion or resistance. Um, you know, we prevent injuries with anticipatory guidance. We prevented SIDS with back to sleep campaigns. So this really is you know, where we need to go uh, with obesity as uh, a significant public health problem. So what we're trying to accomplish with the Start Childhood Off-Right, or SCORE program, because we thought that the world needed another acronym, was <laughs> to create a comprehensive systems approach. And we want to do that by um, first convening a collaborative of community partners that are mobilized to evaluate and map resources to combat childhood obesity, to educate pediatric providers to identify and counsel Harper families with young children who are at risk for obesity, and intervene early and um, provide referrals. Um, to train community outreach workers on counseling um, with the same messaging that we're providing to the pediatric providers. So again, there's that consistent me messaging across sectors. Um, and then for those families who have indicated an interest in being referred after a discussion with provider, to refer those families to the child development into line with an already established mechanism for referral which now have been populated with specific resources catered to obesity prevention. So things like home visiting programs, breastfeeding support, nutrition education, healthy food access, and parent support. And then to connect Hartford families with health promotion organizations through various wellness events that disseminate that same messaging that we're talking about with providers and community outreach workers. So for those of you who attended Dr. Track's recent grand rounds on childhood obesity, she actually teed it up very nicely for us, and we're going to pick up right where she left off. Um, within Start Childhood Off Right, the goal is to begin to address the layers of the problem, which is shown in this diagram of the ecological model of childhood overweight. So at the center, you see the child weight status, which you most often think uh, is directly associated with diet and physical activity, but the child obviously is part of a family, um, which brings in, um, which has other factors that then impact that child's weight. So their parenting strategies, their feeding practices, their um, the parent's own intake, and all of these things in the green circle that then impacts that child as well. And then the family is rooted in the community, and so then the community brings another level of factors that need to be taken into account. Um, such as their socioeconomic status, the neighborhood, if it's safe, can they let their children run around outside, um, access to food in that neighborhood, um, access to grocery stores, um, and access to recreation. So one of the ways in which SCORE is taking this ecological model into account is through the reestablishment of the Hartford Childhood Wellness Alliance. Um, so this collaborative creates one table for discussion across organizations that operate in different sectors to improve the nutrition, health, and well-being of Hartford's children. So we reconvened that group um, in September. We've met quarterly since then, 
And we have seen the group expand to include additional stakeholders every meeting. Um, but what's most exciting to witness um, is the cross-pollination of ideas that we see happening at that table. Um, so for example, at a recent meeting, the Hartford Foundation was commenting on how they're initiating training for their home-based care providers, or early education care providers. And um, then the DPH chimed in and said, oh, well, we have this campaign that we've started called Water First for Your Thirst. And it really tied really nicely into what um, the Hartford Foundation had wanted to do for training. And it was an already established educational program that was being piloted in other communities. And the Hartford Foundation is planning to bring that to Hartford specifically to train their home-based um, early education providers. So one of the other goals of um, Start Childhood Off Right is to host monthly wellness events. Um, so these definitely provide a great opportunity to directly engage with the Hartford community, but they also convert those broad health messages that we're disseminating through the pediatric providers and through community outreach workers into real-life practical solutions for families. Um, and they also create an example for other community-based organizations to replicate at their own organizations, um, which then can have the possibility of a much greater impact. So in, uh, these are just some examples of recent events that we've held. Um, we had a dinner and a story event at the Hartford Public Library downtown branch where there was nearly 100 attendees. Um, and people were really excited to hear that story and see how they can then read stories to their children to tie, um, to curb their picky eating of their toddler. Um, and we got really great feedback from the Hartford um, librarian about that event. Another event that we had um, was Mommy and Me Yoga, which showed families how they can do things like this at home to um, be active with their child as well, um, and to sing songs and do things like that, but then promote all the things that we're trying to disseminate through other mechanisms. And we also did an event at um, Family Life Education, where, in which we brought in Cooking Matters to teach new moms about reading nutrition labels, about their healthy portion sizes, and then what they can then feed their toddlers as well. So back to um, the training that we're providing to both providers and community outreach workers, these are the main messages that are being disseminated through both of those um, outlets. So to promote responsive eating practices based on the recent Robert Wood Johnson Healthy Eating Research, to promote breastfeeding, to provide appropriate messages for formula feeding babies, to encourage appropriate introduction of healthy complementary foods, to shape healthy food preferences, including avoidance of added sugars and sugar-sweetened beverages, to promote good infant sleep habits, and to, to promote daily physical activity, and minimize screen time and sedentary behavior. So the healthy eating research that Stacey just mentioned, um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation released evidence-based feeding guidelines for infants and young toddlers last year. Um, and it really emphasized a responsive parenting approach to promote healthy nutrition and feeding patterns for infants and toddlers from birth to 24 months. Uh, it looked at how infants and toddlers develop food preferences and how caregivers affect those preferences. And specifically, you know, within the responsive, the role of responsive feeding, how infants and toddlers signal hunger and satiety and the role of responsive feeding to avoid coercive overfeeding or using food as a soothing tactic or a reward. Um, responsive feed, the responsive feeding component of responsive parenting is a crucial dimension um, that involves reciprocity between the child and the caregiver 
during the feeding process, and there's really three major steps. First, the child signals hunger and satiety through motor actions, facial expressions, vocalizations, and it's helping parents to recognize what those signals are. Um, the caregiver recognizes cues and responds promptly and in an emotionally supportive manner that's developmentally appropriate and contingent on the infant signals, and the child experiences a, predict a predictable response to those signals. Um, so one of the thing, one of the most important things um, about child infant feeding especially is promoting and supporting breastfeeding. Um, and the AAP, which I'm sure everybody in the audience knows, but the AAP recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life with continued breastfeeding for greater than or equal to a year as long as desired by mother and child. Um, the relationship between breastfeeding and obesity prevention is complicated. There's conflicting evidence um, that it's preventive, that, um, that it is uh, going to be helpful in, in curtailing obesity, but there is evidence that exclusivity and duration strengthen the association. It does promote self-regulation of intake by the infant and regulation of volume through supply and demand rather than parent-driven bottle feeding and parent-driven bottle overfeeding. Um, there are other bioactive compounds in breast milk that are involved in the regulation of growth and development. Uh, leptin, ghrelin, um, and then some of the growth factors, and we'll talk about those again in a minute. Um, and there is, there have been studies that have shown increased adiposity in formula-fed infants and slower growth in breastfed infants after six months and beyond. The AAP actually has a um, policy of recommendations for a breastfeeding-friendly pediatric office practice, um, and that is implementing a written breastfeeding friendly office policy, training staff in skills needed to support breastfeeding, including community resources and support groups, and telephone triage of breastfeeding concerns. Discussing breastfeeding with expectant mothers, and we were actually, um, did an epic module presentation at an office yesterday, and they were talking about how they actually had a, you know, a prenatal group once a week or once a month. They had a prenatal group that they met with expectant mothers and talking about the practice and, and that was one of the components of theirs was really discussing breastfeeding and, and encouraging mothers to be prepared for the challenges that might await that. Um, encouraging mothers to breastfeed exclusively for six months, which I think we're not great at because you know people are always itching to start solids. Providing breastfeeding-friendly postpartum care and education. Providing mothers with anticipatory guidance about returning to school or work. Letting them know that the law in Connecticut is that all employers um, Employers have to provide mothers um, with a clean and uh, private place for them to pump. They're guaranteed two breaks during the day, um, and, uh, and a lot of moms don't know that. Providing um, appropriate educational resources and eliminating the practice of free items from formula companies. We have been uh, marketing formula for these companies for years, um, and I would say that even, you know, I'm gonna just make this little statement against my own practice, even primary care at CCMC still distributes formula samples. So um, it is something that we really all need to steer away from. Um, and the other thing is just really monitoring uh, Monitoring our own practices, breastfeeding initiation and duration makes and seeing where we can maybe do better. Um, so shaping healthy food preferences in the first two years um, is crucial in to, to really establishing um, these healthy food preferences at the age, by the age of two. 
Um, and the recommendations are, you know, there's a variety, um, variety in the maternal diet influences flavor exposure in the amniotic fluid in utero and in breast milk. Infants typically need repeated exposure, and I, you know, I'm telling parents this all the time in my office, over a dozen times sometimes, and opportunities with new and unfamiliar foods before intake will increase. We all know that babies have that neophobia, they don't like the new stuff. Um, that all of us are pre-programmed to prefer sweet and salty tastes over healthier foods, um, a fact that's well known by the food industry and you know why my husband bought french fries fried in 100% uh, lard would be so tasty. Um, we need to target, uh, the target eating patterns for infants and toddlers need to include vegetables, infant cereals, meats, fruits, dairy products, and really need to be focused on providing higher nutrient density with lower calories and avoiding the sweet and salty sugary snacks and foods. Um, parents and siblings need to be role models for eating behaviors and create a healthy home food environment. And healthcare establishments, I'm gonna just call us out for a minute, um, should set the bar by providing healthy choices and removing energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods and beverages. I love my ER colleagues, and um, who doesn't love like that middle-of-the-night slushy? But really, should we have a slushy machine in our emergency room and you know be handing those out to the kids who come through? Not a great nutritional message. Um, and you know, as a healthcare establishment, we do we have to provide the example. And I know we've tried to get rid of the large, extra-large, you know, soft drinks in the in the cafeteria with sort of, you know, no success. So that's something I think we all need to consider. I think um, CVS, now that they're CVS Aetna, um, needs to reconsider sort of candy and sugary snacks um, the way that they consider tobacco and getting rid of cigarettes in their pharmacies. Maybe, you know, take away all that candy and stuff right by the cash register that they're always trying to get you to buy. And especially for parents with small children, <laughs> that's killer. So what is happening in the Hartford community to try to chip away at this problem? So there are many um, amazing organizations that are working in different aspects to try to help shape healthy food preferences. So OSNAP, I think, is a really clever marketing campaign um, in which um, they're trying to educate um, Hartford residents about their ability to uh, increase their SNAP dollars at Hartford Farmers Market. Similarly, with works and the Hispanic Health Council are offering guidelines for feeding healthy infants and small children, including the use of their benefits at farmers markets as well. Um, food share um, is not only addressing the state's food insecurity needs, but also trying to address access to healthy food. Um, they've implemented a mobile food share, which provides fresh produce at various locations throughout the city. They've introduced um, a swap program, which is supporting wellness at pantries to help the volunteers at the pantries and the clients who use the pantries identify healthier choices. Um, Connecticut Children's Clinical Nutrition also can help counsel families of at-risk infants and toddlers on healthy choices. Um, the Hartford Food System operates a mobile market and is working to expand farmers markets throughout the city. Um, and that mobile market again goes through to different neighborhoods throughout the city. Um, Knox is transforming land in Hartford into edible, productive community gardens. We recently partnered with them in an event at the library in which we um, had provided seed and soil um, for families to do their own planting of herbs that they took home with them. And they were really excited about this um, because it gave them a way to grow something for their, an activity for their child to do. And it made them aware of what Knox is doing in the city and that they can help them to create their own community garden. Um, there's also been an increased focus on the North Hartford Promise Zone. 
and specifically to expand healthy food in that uh, area with the Swift Factory food incubator and possibility of grocery store development um, in that neighborhood. So one of the domains identified by the um, Institute of Medicine was promoting healthy beverages and trying to decrease the amount of unhealthy beverages that uh, children consume. So the recommendations are unflavored cow's milk introduced after 12 months for babies who are, who are not breastfeeding. The AP is not recommending fruit juice until after 12 months and then only 100% fruit juice in small quantities if given at all. And that sugar-sweetened beverages are always discouraged and, and we can let families know that they contribute to tooth decay, weaker bones, and an unhealthy weight. So in the Hartford community, we mentioned earlier that there's this Water First for Your Thirst campaign, which was a partnership between the Department of Public Health, Husky Nutrition, and the SNAP-Ed Oral Health Program, which developed an obesity prevention toolkit specifically to address um, drinking water instead of sugar-sweetened beverages, and it's meant to be used in early care education centers and in home-based providers to really teach young children to drink water as the main source of hydration so it becomes a lasting habit. Because many of those places, what was being offered was juice instead of water. Um, and then this promotes consistent messaging across sites again. I think one of the things that we need to be aware of as, um, as providers and that we need to talk to parents about is the marketing and, and misinformation of foods and beverages. And this was a study done by the Rudd Center just a couple of years ago, specifically just looking at toddler, uh, infant and toddler foods formula and then toddler products. But it really does span across all of um, the sort of food environment. Um, in 2015, the, the formula company spent $77 million to advertise baby and toddler foods, infant formulas, and toddler milks. 60% um, of their promoted products are not recommended for young children, including sugar-sweetened beverages and nutritionally poor toddler snacks. Toddler milk products, this drives me insane, are marketed as beneficial for children's development and as a solution for picky eaters, and they have these snappy little names like Enfagrow, Similac, Go and Grow, Hoppy Tot Grow and Shine. Um, they are specifically targeted to Latino caregivers. Um, and they also now have, which everybody's probably seen, these toddler pouches, um, which literally completely take away you know, any toddler's ability to regulate their own intake. It's literally just squeezing food into their mouth. Um, and it does also prevent exposure to textures and limits their motor development. One of the other things that uh, has come across as a, um, and, and we're seeing more and more data come out, is um, the connection between infant sleep and obesity. Um, and promoting good infant sleep habits uh, is, gonna, is becoming a crucial part also of obesity prevention. Um, there's emerging evidence of an association between short sleep duration as a contributor to obesity development. Elsie Tavares from um, Harvard demonstrated sleep durations less than 12 hours in, the six, to tw in six to 24 month olds um, is a risk factor for overweight and adiposity in preschool aged children. And we do know that sleep restriction in adults results in um, a reduction in the appetite suppressing hormone leptin and an increase in the appetite stimulating hormone ghrelin. Um, and while there is limited data um, of this in infants, it's an interesting theory and model uh, to consider. And then in the community, WIC has the Secrets of Baby Behavior, which they adapted from UCSF, 
which helps parents understand how babies sleep and it helps parents interpret babies' cues and um, promotes responsive parenting. And um, the Connecticut Department of Public Health is funding that training for nurturing family and other home visitor programs. So the AP Committee on Nutrition came out with a statement a couple years ago on uh, recommendations for pediatricians in preventing obesity. Um, and it, was, uh, it includes res promoting responsive feeding strategies with all families to help establish consistent messaging across sites regarding infant and toddler feeding, to identify children at risk of developing obesity and tailor prevention to the child's developmental stage and to the family's characteristics. Reiterating core nutrition and activity messages to empower parents to create a healthy food and activity environment from very early in life. And partnering, in, partnering with and supporting dietitians, with lactation support, other community organizations to help patients with challenges they face. Um, the Robert Wood Johnson Healthy Eating Research um, also identified, looked at um, a, a very comprehensive review of the literature um, and identified some of the risk factors for developing obesity. And the maternal factors, um, looking at conception through birth, um, high maternal pre-pregnancy BMI, uh, greater than 26, maternal gestational diabetes, excess maternal weight gain during pregnancy, maternal smoking during pregnancy, and parental obesity. And the pediatric factors uh, included a higher birth weight greater than 40 kilos, the, this is the big one, I think, number two. Rapid weight gain crossing more than two weight for length percentiles on the growth curve. Higher absolute weight for length greater than the 85th percentile. Lower socioeconomic status, racial and ethnic minorities. And insufficient sleep less than 12 hours per day in six to 24 months old. And I think, you know, this gives us an opportunity to really partner with our OB colleagues and see if we can get more of this information sort of transmitted in the, um, the the birth notes um, and the, the perinatal notes, um, but it is pretty easy for us as, as pediatric providers to, to identify the pediatric risk factors and try and intervene um, and monitor those kids closely. There was a, a recent article of, by uh, Michaela Bine and her group in um, Massachusetts expanding the role of the primary of primary care in the prevention and treatment of obesity, and it's kind of the left side is sort of similar to what we've talked about, weight status assessment and monitoring, healthy lifestyle promotion, patient treatment using evidence-based techniques, clinician skill development, but I think the right side is sort of the interesting thing and where a score is trying to um, have an, an impact. Um, clinical infrastructure development, referring referrals to community programs, community health education, multi-sector community initiatives, and policy advocacy. So in our offices, sort of similar to what we do with uh, developmental screening, um, we can screen, counsel, and refer. We can screen for maternal and child risk factors and document um, these risk factors in the, ch in the chart for follow-up. We can screen for abnormal growth and weight for length, crossing percentiles on the growth curve, and document that in the chart for follow-up. I think we're often so busy sort of just filling in our, our you know, click, 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 click down the, um, the medical record that we don't actually really look and assess these things. Um, asking caregivers if they have concerns about their infant's feeding or growth, the way we ask them if they have concerns about their, um, their infant's development. Um, helping parents understand their child's risks for developing obesity and associated potential health risks, and identifying barriers such as food insecurity, affordability, access, nutrition, education, or safe play spaces. And then we can connect family once we identify what the barriers are and what their needs are. 
um, we can connect families to community services for early intervention. And again, document this referral and connection to services in the chart so it's something we can follow up on. I put this in here because I've been filling out WIC forms for decades. Um, and I always click the little one, you know, number 27, possible regression and nutritional status, and just hand it to the parent. And when we met with, um, with WIC, they really uh, encouraged us to fill out the anthropometric stuff. And if you have high weight for length, if you have at risk of overweight, um, if you have large for gestational age, if you have these kids that have risk factors, and it's, and it's the same for the two to five year olds, but since fourth birth to two, we're focusing on the left hand side. Um, if you have these kids who are at risk, check it. And WIC has counseling. They will do more nutrition counseling with the parents. They will make sure that they have education. Um, and, and it gives them another tool to work with families. So reviewing the role of the pediatric practice, we need to provide all families with information on how to help their children grow up at a healthy weight, provide ongoing monitoring and support with documentation and patient charts, forge relationships with local lactation consultants, nutrition experts, and WIC and other community resources. Um, practice staff can display and dispense healthy eating and activity information and breastfeeding support with posters and handouts and really trying to eliminate um, formula promotion. Conduct surveillance of maternal and child risk factors and screen to identify infants and toddlers at risk and connect families to helpful resources through either Child Development Info Line or 211. So one of the things that we're advocating with the pediatric providers is to begin with a, a conversation with the family about what is their perception about their child's weight, about their child's risks, risk factors, and the associated health risks. And then to identify what challenges that that family is having with helping their child grow at a healthy weight. And some of those barriers uh, might be breastfeeding support, access to healthy food, food affordability, nutrition education, physical activity, or home visitation programs. We realize these are not the only barriers that they might have, but these are common barriers that might come up in these types of conversations. And so then what we're doing with SCORE is a resource mapping um, in which the provider has that conversation with the family. Um, and one of the things that we've heard from providers in developing SCORE is that when you identify a concern, then what do you do with the family? And so that's why we've worked with the Child Development Info Line to populate resources specifically to address obesity prevention. And so we've broken it into these categories and we've identified organizations who are willing to receive direct referrals from the Child Development Info Line for various things like breastfeeding support, healthy food access, nutrition education, parental support, and home visiting. There's many organizations that are working in these different arenas right now, um, and you can see that the arrows are going all over the place um, because a lot of them are doing bits and pieces and they're happy to take those referrals. So just last month, um, or maybe two, I guess February actually, um, the Committee on Nutrition, they're coming out with a lot of policy statements, um, in, uh, came out with a statement advocating for improving nutrition in the first thousand days to support childhood development and adult health. And there was actually a similar, kind of comprehensive evidence paper um, from um, Melbourne, Australia, um, kind of our OCCH Australian counterparts, um, saying, you know, that stated that nutrition is probably one of the most significant individual factors for child development in the first thousand days. And it's something we don't really learn about in medical school. It's never been really high on everyone's um, radar in terms of what we do. But the, um, this policy statement uh, says that maternal prenatal nutrition and the child's nutrition in the first two years of life 
the first thousand days from conception to two, are crucial factors in a child's neurodevelopment and lifelong mental health. All providers caring for children can advocate for healthy diets for mothers, infants, and young children in the first thousand days. Prioritizing public policies and ensuring the provision of adequate nutrients and healthy eating during this crucial time would ensure that all children have an early foundation for optimal neurodevelopment and a key factor in long-term health. And if we actually, if I go back to WIC for one second, 53% of children in this, of infants and young children under five in this country um, participate in WIC. And I think in Hartford, it's something similar to that. So that again is another place with healthy food packages, you know, where we can refer children and try and guarantee that they have adequate and the best nutrition. Um, this is um, a, an editorial, uh, an opinion piece by David Ludwig from um, Boston Children's. Um, and this was in response to the most recent data that was published, um, the NHANES data about how obesity, we thought it had plateaued, we were wrong, it's still rising. Um, and he says that, uh, you know, the public health approach to the obesity epidemic has largely failed thus far, which I think we can all agree on. Um, we know what the biological drivers of obesity are, but we need an effective strategy to address these drivers with sufficient intensity, consistency, and persistence. We need to target the incessant exposure to manipulative food marketing through all types of media. Um, and the, um, the projected rates, you know, up to 57%, you know, of, of children now by the age of 35, um, to be obese, they demand a definitive action and a comprehensive national strategy across all relevant sectors of society because we really are sort of heading to this looming disaster. I think we're all seeing um, the effects of obesity, the 200 and 300 pound, you know, adolescents that we never used to see. Um, you know, and while I, uh, I applaud my uh, surgery colleagues for trying to change the trajectories of those children, you know, I kind of feel like if we're getting to bariatric surgery for our adolescents, like we kind of failed, you know, early on. Um, so how do we engage in policy and advocacy? Um, you know, within the healthcare system, we can improve insurance coverage for effective obesity counseling and treatment, and we can definitely be better advocates for breastfeeding. Urban design is important. Um, the built environment um, needs to have sidewalks, bike paths, parks, playgrounds, safe walking zones. We need to make it safe for kids to be outside, for kids to go out and play. Marketing and media um, is a, a really a big area where we can intervene, supporting a sugar-sweetened beverage tax. That has been shown to decrease the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and improve water consumption. Subsidizing nutritious foods and you know, stop subsidizing high fructose corn syrup. Um, prohibiting food advertising and marketing directed at children, improving funding for obesity prevention public health campaign. Um, in England, they just passed a law that, in, uh, that prohibits fast food establishments within an, a mile of schools. Um, and I think politically, we really need to make, I don't think we're really gonna have true change unless we make big food the next big tobacco. We need to regulate um, food industry political contributions, and influence to protect and promote children's health. And I was at the AAP legislative conference a couple weeks ago, and this is sort of everybody coming together on gun safety. And I do feel like you know we as a pediatric community also really need to come together um, to uh, promote children's health and really try and protect them from the food industry and um, and to to take this seriously. Um, we just want to put a little plug in, we're done. <laughs> um, but um, we just want to say, you know, for any um, pediatric offices that would like to implement some of these um, 
Uh, changes that we've talked about into your practices, practices, the Child Health and Development Institute has the EPIC modules, educating practices in the community. Um, we would be happy to come to your office and, and provide you free lunch and, um, and give you some materials and talk about this a little bit uh, more specifically. And I think there's some information on your table. Yeah, I think there's also some information on your table on the way out. So you can contact the um, CHDI, you can contact us, whichever.